Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to another episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay. And uh, we are coming to you, I guess, when you hear this, two days after the Suns' Game 4 defeat. Uh, Tough one for the Suns, I'm not going to lie. That one was a gut-wrenching loss, Um, especially because, you know, heading into Game 4, I had predicted that they would bounce back and win. I thought for sure they would steal one of the two games in Milwaukee. Uh, Game 3 was pretty much a blowout. Devin Booker played like crap. The Suns were just outmatched by the Bucks' desperation. In game four, the Suns had the right idea, or at least in terms of uh, Devin Booker had the right idea. And, uh, you know, they really did, you know, for most of the game, it felt like a game that the Suns were going to pull out. They were going to avoid their sixth losing streak of the season. They've only had five all year long. And then they just kind of fell apart in those last couple of minutes there. And, uh a lot of the things that we saw in game three and for most of game four really came back to haunt them. We're going to get into all of that in terms of uh, a couple points of emphasis for game five, because if you watched Monty at the end of game four, his interview, um, a Dario Saric's face was just incredible. If you haven't seen this clip, you need to go find it and just watch Dario Saric <laughs> a couple of times because it's fantastic. But um, Monty said it, these are all self-inflicted things. These are things that are correctable and heading into game five back at home in Phoenix, the Suns still have home court advantage. They worked hard to put themselves in this position where they have home court advantage in the finals. It's all you could ask for. Got to win two out of three and two out of three come at home. They've only lost at home twice all year. So they're still in position to win this series, but we are going to talk a little bit about Chris Paul's performance and what it means for the Suns for the rest of the series. We're going to talk about some points of emphasis for game five. We're going to talk about, we're going to kind of wrap that up with a nice little bow on the remaining reasons why I think the Suns are still going to win this series. If you recall, I predicted Suns and six from the beginning. No, not Suns and four, Suns and six. And then we're going to wrap up with our latest G-rated segment, which is going to be on Loki and the season finale that just wrapped up on Wednesday. But uh, I wanted to give you guys a couple extra days to get caught up on that because uh, I'm sure everyone was too busy with the Suns game on Wednesday to really (laughs) enjoy the Loki finale anyway. So we are going to start with Chris Paul, who... I mean, it's not an exaggeration to say that Chris Paul's game four performance cost them that game. It was a very winnable game. And if you even have average Chris Paul in that game, that's a that's a game that the Suns win nine times out of 10. Unfortunately, this was the 10th time and uh, he finished with 10.7 assists, five turnovers, shot five for 13 and was a team worst minus 10. And it was pretty evident early on that he just didn't look comfortable. And honestly, he hasn't looked dominant since game one and the switch there is obviously the bucks have put drew holiday on chris paul and drew holiday has been awful on the offensive end for the most part he did have a good game three he was terrible in game four on the offensive end as well i think he started zero for five he couldn't make a layup he had really weird touch on a lot of his layups that he even did make 
Um, so it was a rough game for Holiday on the offensive end, but he has made a huge difference in this series on the defensive end because of the pressure that he's continually applying to Chris Paul. He's not letting he's not letting him go on screens. He's getting around those screens. He's following him everywhere. Chris Paul is not getting his normal comfortable looks that he gets from the mid-range or from anywhere else on the floor for that matter because Holiday is pretty much all over him. So <clears throat> you know, that's a testament to Drew Holiday. It's not Chris Paul wilting from the moment. It's not Chris Paul choking again. Um, I thought we'd put those narratives to bed after what he did in game six of the last round, after what he did in game one of these very finals, but apparently not. So we have to cover this. So, you know, there, there was a lot of speculation that maybe he's not healthy. Maybe he's not 100% right. And I would agree that he definitely did not look 100% right in game four. Like it looked like something was bugging him. I don't know if Drew Holiday and the Bucks have gotten in his head. I don't know if the moment is too big for him. I don't think so. I feel like based on what we saw in games one through three, he's been waiting for this moment. Um, you know, he's been great. Like he, that didn't, I don't know if he's hurt because if he is hurt, like he was still able to drop 41 and eight on 16 of 24 shooting in game six of the conference finals, not that long ago, you know, like he was still able to put up 32 and nine on 12 of 19 shooting in game one of the finals. So, and like even in games two and three, I think he had 23 on 50% shooting in game two. And then game three he had 19 and nine on like eight of 14 shooting. So he's still been shooting above 50% until this game four performance where he just really kind of shit the bed for whatever reason. So I don't know if it's a lingering injury. He did say after the conference finals that he had a couple of uh, damaged ligaments in his wrist from a foul that he got in that series. So maybe that is something that's bothering him, but I just don't understand why it would be bothering him more now than it was a while back. I think he just had a bad game and that's okay. Um, but the overreaction to that bad game, as bad as it was, and I'm the first to admit, like it cost the Suns that game and it, you know, swung momentum back in Milwaukee's favor now heading to game five, like momentum is in their favor. The Suns have to steal it back. Now they have to pay attention to the details. And if Chris Paul even plays an average game in game four, that's not the case. They're heading back to game five in Phoenix to close them out. But, you know, I don't understand why we have to overreact and be such prisoners of the moment and, and, you know, be like, this guy always chokes in the moment. He doesn't. He literally got them to the finals with a masterful game six. He gave them a 1-0 series lead with a fantastic game one. He helped them build on that lead with a 2-0 lead with another great performance in game two, even if it wasn't as dominant. Like He's been great in this series. If you look at his series splits, they've been fantastic. He had one bad game. Devin Booker had one terrible game in game three. Now the hope is as a Suns fan is that they can both get back on the same page because Devin Booker was phenomenal in game four. He had 42 points, um, just a masterful bounce back performance from him. And, and especially because he could have gone for 50 if he hadn't had that foul trouble. Um, but, you know, you, you want the Suns backcourt to get on the same page for this game five that's coming up. Um, but we don't need to overreact to one bad game and say Chris Paul is washed or, you know, some of the polls from Arizona websites that are going around right now about how, uh, you know, one of the options on the poll was should they have Chris Paul on a tighter leash or should they bench him and start campaign? 
and like we just did this in the last round like we literally just did this and then Chris Paul responded in game six and shut everyone up for apparently about two days and now we're already back here like I feel like we're in store for a big bounce back game in game five from Chris Paul at home or you know maybe not maybe he won't and maybe he'll save it for game six on the road when they really need it um, because for whatever reason, the Suns like to close out on the road. They've done it in every series. They've closed out on the road. So, you know, may, I feel like this series could be going seven. I I always had it at Suns and six, but we'll see. It, it really is going to depend on what they get out of Chris Paul. I, for one, feel like the Suns, I mean, the Suns wouldn't be here without Chris Paul. So unless something is really wrong with his wrist or his knee or whatever else Twitter MD thinks is wrong with him, <laughs> on a second to second basis it'd be pretty foolish to lose faith in the point god now he's gotten them this far i really do feel like he's ready for a bounce back game in game five but we need to ease up on chris paul a little bit until the situation command because honestly even if chris paul shot you know one for 30 the rest of the series and the suns lost the finals suns fans should still be thanking him for what he brought to this team this season no one expected the Suns to be here outside of that locker room and it's been amazing to see the way that the city has come alive in his first season here so we really don't have to do this where we have to run a guy's reputation or legacy into the ground after one bad game on a big stage you know we can't forget the three that came before that and the you know how many 16 that came before that in this playoff run that has gotten them to the finals so Ease up on Chris Paul. It's going to be okay. There's no reason to panic just yet. With that being said, we need to go over the points of emphasis the Suns have to have in this upcoming game because games three and four, I'm not going to lie, were ugly in a couple of key areas that the Suns did a relatively great job in games one and two. So we're going to go through all of those and they're pretty you know, they all kind of show up on the same area of the stat sheet. If you go to nba.com slash stats and you go to uh, the miscellaneous section and a lot of these show up in the same spot and it's for a reason because they are kind of key areas that influence the game that, you know, people may not pay as much attention to on a basis on a game to game basis because they're not like just raw basic stats. So the first one turnovers and points off of turnovers, you know, Monty pointed this out, especially, and it was true after game three, too, they've got to take better care of the ball. So just some numbers here. We're going to throw a lot of numbers at you, but I promise they're all pretty basic here. In games one and two, the Suns committed 22 turnovers that led to 26 points for the Bucks, and the Bucks committed 23 turnovers that led to 31 points for the Suns. So basically in games one through two, the Suns committed one less turnover than the Bucks and they got five more points off of turnovers than the Bucks, So that's pretty good. You know, that's winning the margins, committing fewer turnovers, scoring more points off of turnovers. It's very narrow, but that's what you like to see against another good defensive team. In games three and four, the Suns committed 32 turnovers, so 10 more turnovers than they did in the first two games, leading to 41 Bucks points, 15 more points off turnovers for the Bucks. And the Bucks only committed 14 turnovers, that's nine fewer, leading to 15 Suns points, that's 16 fewer than the Suns scored in the first two games. So all in all, the Suns committed 18 more turnovers in games three and four than the Bucks did, and they scored 26 fewer points off of turnovers than the Bucks did over those two games. 
So that's horrendous. They went from one fewer turnover to 18 more turnovers. They went from five more points off turnovers to 26 fewer points. So that's a huge swing on the road. And I really do think we talked about this on the last pod. I think that playing in their first truly like hostile, really loud road playoff environment got to them a little bit um, because, you know, the Lakers at Staples Center uh, in the first round, they weren't even letting in full capacity crowds yet. Uh, the Nuggets were kind of taken out of that. Like Nuggets, Denver has always been a Broncos town anyway. They've routinely had some of the lowest attendance in the league. So they're just not that crazy about the Nuggets in general, even when they're good. And, you know, heading into that series, uh, into game three and four of that series, it was pretty obvious what was about to happen. It was either going to be Suns and four, Suns and five. So they just didn't have enthusiasm. And then the Clippers series, I mean, like it's Clippers fans, it's LA, Staples Center still, I don't think was full capacity for most of that series. So this is the first true taste of their own medicine that they've gotten in terms of uh, just a roaring crowd that they've had to, to play against on the road. And I think that affected them. Another area where the Suns really let their guard down, though, is offensive rebounds and second chance points. So more numbers. In games one through two, the Suns were out-rebounded 93 to 86. So they lost the rebounding battle by seven. They gave up 27 rebounds on the offensive glass and brought down 17 offensive rebounds. So they were minus 10 on the offensive glass. And uh, they had, let's see, set or 20, they had, they gave up 25 second chance points and they had 26 second chance points themselves. So minus seven on the glass, minus 10 on the offensive glass, plus one in second chance points. It's not great, but it's not terrible. If you're only losing the rebounding by battle by three or four rebounds a game, that's not that bad. And the Bucks, as we've covered, have been really good throughout these playoffs of attacking the offensive glass and, and getting second chance opportunities. So the fact that the Suns were actually up in second chance points through the first two games was a really good accomplishment. In games three through four, that completely fell to shit. So the Suns were rebound, out-rebounded 95 to 76. So they, they lost that by 19. They gave up 30 offensive rebounds and only brought down 11. So they lost the offensive rebounding battle by 19. And they gave up 39 second chance points and only scored nine themselves. So minus 19 in rebounds, minus 19 in offensive rebounds, and minus 30 in second chance points over two games you're just not setting yourself up for success if that's the case. Like the Bucks are going to get offensive rebounds. You'll notice between games one and two and games three and four, there's only a difference of three offensive rebounds combined over those games. So the Bucks are going to get their offensive rebounds, but the Suns gave up way more second chance points over those two games and they scored way less second chance points themselves. So they've got to do a better job crashing the offensive glass and they've got to do a better job of, keeping the bucks off the glass and limiting their second chance points when they actually do get those second chance opportunities, because it was a huge deal in game three, how many, you know, multiple looks the bucks were getting on each possession because they couldn't close out with a stop. Uh, another key area, fast break points in games one and two, the Suns only lost the fast break battle 34 to 27. So they lost by seven points. In games three through four, they got shellacked 31 to six in fast break points. So that's a minus 25. Um, all in all, this is where it gets really ugly. So all in all, if you combine points off of turnovers, 
second chance points and fast break points. The Suns were outscored 85 to 84 in those three categories, if you combine them all. So they only lost that battle by one point in the first two games. Over these last two games, they were outscored 111 to 30 in points off turnovers, second chance points, and fast break points. So they went from losing that battle of those three stats by one point to losing it by 81 points over the last two games. That's horrendous. And that is the difference in the series right there. That is why we're heading back to Phoenix tied instead of Suns up 3-1 because the Bucs were going to win game three. Like just the way that those two teams performed, the Bucs were more desperate. They played with a sense of urgency and they're a very good team. Like they're a resilient group. The Suns have to bring it against this team. They're not going to just waltz into an NBA title. But they had a chance to steal game four. They got 42 points out of Booker in a bounce back performance. They were up seven in the fourth quarter. They had a really good shot of winning that game. And that's the game that the Suns have closed out, you know, eight out of 10 times this season. They just couldn't do it because they were getting beat. They were beating themselves in these turnovers and giving up these second chance opportunities and in the, the Bucks just killing them in transition. Um, part of that is limiting the Suns in transition because as much as they've tried to speed up the tempo, they're not getting anything on the break and the Bucks are. So that's been a huge, I mean, 111 to 30 in those categories over the last two games. That is awful, 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 awful stuff. And they're losing the games, these games on the margins. Um, and it kind of traces back to like shot quality and not making the Bucks offense feel them on defense enough. Like, their role players got comfortable at home and that doesn't bode well if that carries over. Obviously it's going to be super loud in Phoenix uh, over the weekend for game five, but you know, you hope that that confidence doesn't carry over because if it does, the Suns are going to have to make them feel their defense more. Um, you know, in games one through two, the Suns took five fewer shots than the Bucks and one more free throw attempt in games three through four, the Suns took 26 fewer shots and 20 fewer free throw attempts. So they're averaging in Milwaukee, they were averaging 13 fewer shots and 10 fewer free throws per game than the Bucks. And I'm not here to complain about the officiating because it's been dicey on both sides. You know, if we want to talk about all the calls that Giannis is getting, we should also also mention that Devin Booker should have fouled out pretty early in that fourth quarter after that that really ill-advised foul that he was trying to take on Drew Holiday and wasn't called. Um, his fifth foul was pretty soft that that box out on PJ Tucker where Tucker kind of flopped a little bit that was soft so I was okay with the no call but you know this isn't about the officiating this is about the quality of shots that the Bucks are getting compared to what the Suns are getting and when you take the majority of your shots in the paint and on the interior you're going to get more foul calls that's just the nature of of the business so the Suns have to find a way to get better shots and to get to the free throw line a little bit. That might help them out in this battle that they're waging on so many different fronts right now. Um, and, and you can measure just how much more comfortable Milwaukee's offense is right now and how much harder the Suns have had to work on the offensive end since the series shifted to Milwaukee. So if you look at each team's potential assist to turnover ratio by game, in game one, the Suns had a potential assist to turnover ratio of 5.9. In game two, that dropped to 3.4. In game three, it dropped to 2.7. In game four, it dropped to 2.2, which is really bad. And the Bucks is trending in the right direction. So the Bucks started at 2.7 in potential assist to turnover ratio. 
Then they jumped to 4.2 in game two. Then it was 5.2 in game three. Then it was 9.8 in game four. And this is a game where they shot 40% from the field and 24% from three. They just, they missed a lot of shots. Um, and, and, you know, the Suns defense did a good job, I thought, on Giannis, and they did a good job of, of contesting those shots. But it's really bad when you shoot 51% from the field and hold your opponent to 40% shooting and you lose that game. That's a killer. That's just killer. Like game four is the game we will definitely look back on if the Suns are in, unable to win two of the next three games because that was a game they absolutely had to win and they should have won. And they could have had a chance to close this series out in five at home and have two cracks at closing this series out at home. Now they're in a dogfight. And, you know, it's <laughs> this one hurts, but they're the first team in finals history to lose a game where the team shot 50% and their opponent shot below 42% from the field. First time that's ever happened in finals history. So really tough loss in game four. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. That was one that the Suns should have had and, and probably needed to have. They could still very well win two of these next three, but it's it's going to be a dogfight now. It's going to be tough. So points of emphasis for game five, got to stop gifting Milwaukee with extra shots on second chance points, uh, on points off turnovers, got to make the defense or the Bucks offense feel them, feel their defense a little bit more. And they got to shoot some threes. Like they, they've got to make some threes. They only attempted 20 some threes in game four and they only made 30% of them. Um, this is supposed to be a good three point shooting team. They've got to take and make threes. Mikael Bridges has to show up. Like he had seven points in the first half. It looked like he was maybe going to get rolling completely disappeared in the second half again and got burned by Chris Middleton who dropped 40. Like that just can't happen. He's either got to be scoring or he's got to be locking in on Chris Middleton. He didn't do either one in game four. So I feel like if anyone deserves a little bit more flack, it might be Mikhail Bridges because as much as Chris Paul's turnovers and poor shooting were, you know, really eye opening, especially for a guy of his caliber, Mikhail Bridges, aside from game two has really not showed up for this series and he's been routinely torched by Chris Middleton on the other end. So that's something that has to change shifting back to game five. Um, and the Suns just got to come up with more 50, 50 balls. It feels like so many balls have just gone Milwaukee's way, just, you know, random chance plays where the ball is loose and it just bounces to Milwaukee for a dunk or something like that. Um, Suns just have to find a way to come up with those loose balls, uh, especially the way that they didn't in game three and game four on the road. But let's shift to a couple of quick reasons why I still think the Suns are going to win this series. You know, the obvious one, they have home court advantage for two of these next three games. They've only lost two games at home. I still stand by the statement that the Suns arena is the most difficult place to play in the NBA right now. And it clearly bothered the Bucks in games one and two. Maybe they found their groove going back home to games three and four, but I really do think it's going to be loud in game five because this is a this is going to be a desperate crowd. This is going to be a desperate Suns team now, now that the series is tied up. I think that does matter. I think role players play better at home, um, which is good news for Campaign and Mikhail Bridges, who have been virtual non-factors for most of this series. Campaign did hit a big three that put the Suns up seven in game four. Um, but he really hasn't been himself. He's been shut down. 
he's been every attempt he's taken in the in the restricted area has been like a block or a miss um so the bucks have really honed in on him when he's been in the game and he just, he hasn't hit as many threes as he normally does so it's been it's been rough for campaign he needs a big game because the suns haven't gotten a big campaign game in in quite a while honestly feels like ever since he kind of rolled his ankle in that conference final series he's been very quiet um Mikhail Bridges, we've talked about him since game two. He hasn't done much of anything. And Chris Middleton has had his number on the other end. So that's something that'll need attention. Um, honestly, we've talked about Chris Paul as well. He and Devin Booker, you know, they both had pretty good game twos. Devin Booker was fantastic in game two. Chris Paul was solid. Um, Booker didn't shoot the ball well in game one, but he played pretty well. Chris Paul was fantastic. Game three, Booker doesn't show up. Game four, Paul doesn't show up. So game five, it'd be nice if they both had fantastic games, wouldn't it? Just like one time for, <laughs> for to go up 3-2 in the series. Um, and the last thing is, you know, Monty said it. Like he has the right mentality. He's told this team hundreds of times, you know, everything you want is on the other side of hard. He's He's got all these Monty-isms that perfectly apply right now. You know, reps remove doubt all of that. The Suns are going to keep letting it fly. They have to keep letting it fly. They have to keep shooting and they have to take care of these self-inflicted wounds because like Monty said, all of these things are correctable. You know, the turnovers, the second chance points, um, the fast break points, these are things that they can focus on. I think they just got a little shell shocked on the road and and lost focus a little bit um, in such an overwhelming environment. So switching back to Phoenix now, the pressure is definitely on, but this is a team that bounces back from losses. I know I said that after game three and they still lost game four. Um, but I really think that was more of an anomaly than anything. Just the way Devin Booker played versus the way Chris Paul played. I don't know if you're going to see that again, unless Chris Paul really is hurt and they're hiding something. Um, but, you know, heading into this game five, they do have what it takes to win this game. You know, we've seen them bounce back so many times. And if they take care of those self-inflicted wounds that I was talking about, those areas of emphasis, I think they're going to be just fine. But uh, we're going to take a quick break. The Valley of the Suns podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. Go to manscaped.com. Put in that promo code FANSIDED20. They've got the Lawnmower 4.0, which is sweet. It's optimized. It's waterproof. You can groom in the shower. You don't have to worry about making a mess. And, you know, that's the way to do it. It's got the wireless charging system. And, you know, you really shouldn't use what you use for your face on your private parts. Like you've got to give yourself the respect you deserve. So go to manscaped.com, fansided20. It's 20% off and free shipping. And you'll be happy that you're, you got yourself the lawnmower 4.0. So moving on, we're going to close with our G-rated segment, which is on the Loki finale. And if you haven't watched it, it's six episodes on Disney Plus. They're about 45 minutes each. So it's not, it won't take you too long to catch up. But I actually enjoyed this the most, I think, out of all three Disney Plus shows. I think it's, I mean, all three of these shows were very different in their approach. But basically the premise is it picks up after uh, Loki picks up the Tesseract, which he does in about midway through uh in Avengers Endgame and 
you know, he, he kind of vanishes and we don't know where he goes. This picks up right after he vanishes and it shows where he goes. He's picked up by what's called the Time Variance Authority or the TVA. And they are basically this entity that watches all of these different timelines, timelines across the multiverse because there are multiple universes within this Marvel cinematic universe, basically. So Loki winds up working with this agent of the TVA named Mobius, who's played by Owen Wilson, who's just delightful in this. And their objective is basically to hunt down this variant Loki who has been killing Lokis and TVA members, or I'm sorry, has been killing TVA members all over the place on a separate timeline. Um, so over the course of the show, Loki and Mobius become friends. And then Loki encounters this other Loki who's been killing all the TVA agents. And he actually teams up with her. She's basically a female version of him. Um, and she's been hiding in these apocalypses because it's harder to track these worlds that are ending because that's where their timeline stops branching off basically. So she's been hiding in all these apocalypses. Um, and she kind of reveals to Loki that the TVA is corrupt, that they're lying, that everyone that works at the TVA is a variant themselves who's been brainwashed. So eventually Mobius learns the truth as well with Loki. Um, they learn that the three sacred timekeepers or whatever the hell they're called are fake. They're just these robots that are sitting there that were created by somebody else. Um, but there's still some corruption in the TVA. And so they're all kind of pruned to the edge of time. Um, and when you're pruned, you're basically, you're told that you're zapped out of existence, but they're not. They're zapped to the edge of time, to this alternate place where all these lost things go, these variants go that had to be removed from the timeline to keep it from branching off in all these different directions. So it's, it's very cosmic and it's uh, a very grand scale. Like the people that work at the TVA use infinity stones as like paperweights. So it basically contextualizes and, and puts everything that's come before with Thanos and the infinity gauntlet and all that to shame. Um, so they're pruned to the edge of time. They are facing this giant beast called Eliath and um, the female Loki who has the gift of enchantment, basically her and Loki enchant this beast and they're able to get to what the beast was guarding, which is the citadel at the edge of time where <clears throat> the, you know, the main big bad, the person behind it all awaits them. And it's uh, Jonathan Majors, who was recently in Lovecraft Country. If you haven't seen that, you should definitely check that show out. It's great. But uh, Jonathan Majors, who, if you've been paying attention to Marvel casting news, is playing Kang the Conqueror. He's a very famous uh, villain from the comics. He's this kind of, uh, I don't want to say time traveling, because he basically skips universes and can travel through these different multiverses. Um, but he's kind of this, this all-knowing being. And most of the finale, honestly, is just Loki, Sylvie, that's the female Loki, and Kang sitting in a room talking. And it's mostly Kang talking, but it's kind of riveting because Jonathan Majors does such a great job. I feel like he needed to be a little bit more menacing, maybe more of a villain-esque character, but you know, the whole scene that he's acting, it's just, he commands the whole room. 
So, you know, and, and I'm hoping that he didn't have as much menace in his performance because it's like a small screen debut. They're saving it for when he's in an actual Marvel movie. And he's also, according to the story, a nicer version of the Kang that we're going to see uh, moving forward because this version has been trying to keep the multiverse in line. He's in charge of the TVA. He's trying to weed out these other uh, timeline branches that could threaten because he basically, a variant of himself, discovered that there are all these multiverses stacked on top of each other. And as they learn to communicate with these different uh, alternate universes, um, different versions of himself tried to take over and, and engulf them in war and conquer basically so his job is to make sure that doesn't happen to sit there to manipulate people to do horrible things to try and keep those multiverses from you know igniting into an all-out war and uh, whether you buy it or not that's kind of the crux of the issue for loki and sylvie loki wants to think it out because uh kang basically offers that the two of them could rule the TVA and they could do things their way and they could live the lives that they've always wanted to live. But Sylvie wants her revenge. She thinks that it's a trick. She just wants to kill Kang. And so Loki and her wind up fighting and then she kind of tricks him because she pretends like she's giving in to what he's saying. And she like kisses him because they've been falling in love. Classic narcissists, narcissists falling in love with themselves but they kiss and then she winds up sending him using um, Kang's little device, sending him to another timeline, sending him out of the room so she can kill Kang and she does. And as soon as she does this uh, timeline, which you can see from the window because they're in this citadel at the edge of time, starts branching off like crazy. And Loki arrives back at the TVA and he goes to Mobius to tell him to prepare for, you know, these war, um, these war loving versions of gang. And Mobius doesn't know who he is. So he was sent and he looks out the window and sees this giant imperial esque statue of Kang as, as this conqueror, as this Lord, as this ruler and realizes, okay, I'm not at the TVA where I thought I was. This Mobius doesn't know me. And that's basically where the finale ends. So it's a little bit of a cliffhanger. It doesn't bring full res resolution and it opens up a ton of questions, but it also opens a shit ton of doors for the Marvel Cinematic Universe moving forward. And honestly, I thought it was a much better finale than WandaVision or uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier gave us because I thought those shows might've been stronger at the start or through their body of work, but Loki finished the best. And I feel like Loki was still a very solid show. So they're all pretty great. I'm not going to lie. Like I enjoyed all three of them, but I, I feel like Loki might be the strongest of the three just because like Tom Hiddleston is great. Um, you know, Owen Wilson is pretty fantastic as well. Um, Sophie DiMartino, who plays Sylvie, is, is great. Majors just commands the finale. So it's really good acting. Um, but I, I just like the way that this one ended the best, even though it doesn't really bring the story like full circle. But I, th I thought there was great chemistry in, ca in the cast. It just didn't bring the story full circle. But that's kind of to be expected because these shows are more like um, avenues into what's coming next in 
the movies you know they're like i don't want to dumb it down and, and like insult the filmmakers or the people involved with these shows but they're kind of like really really extended really good versions of the post marvel credits like they're not gonna wrap things up in a bow they're gonna leave tons of doors open for what's coming next because that's just the way that this marvel cinematic universe works um so it doesn't give you full resolution but it does i mean apparently there's going to be a season two of loki which is good news that's great because i enjoyed this one the most um but it, it'll be interesting to see because there are so many unanswered questions you know we leave loki who is in this either alternate dimension or is in the same dimension but in a version where owen wilson and and everyone else has been their minds have been washed by sylvie killing kang which has ramifications throughout the multiverse. We don't know what they are yet. So it's going to be interesting, but there's so many other unanswered questions like um, what files did he who remains Kang send Ravona, who worked for the TVA and kind of disappears? Where did Ravona go? She ran off in, in search of free will, apparently, whatever that means. Um, so we don't know where she went. Um, we don't know why Loki appeared in a a different timeline from the sacred timeline and if he did appear in the same timeline why did kang dying brainwash everyone else or, or might wipe their memory uh, what will become of sylvie now that she's learned that she's made a terrible mistake and she should have trusted loki what will loki do next now that he's been portrayed by literally the only person that he wanted to trust him and, and trusted in return what will become of crocodile loki because we we met crocodile loki in episode five and his time was too brief. And now we don't know, we even know what happened to him at the end of episode five. So lots of questions to be answered in the future. Um, but I really enjoyed this show. It actually has a really incredible score. Like the music in this show is fantastic. It's just elevated and it's um, it's very intense. It's really cool. I love the music in this, in this show. Um, acting was pretty great. Owen Wilson, I, I feel like he wasn't given enough to do that was maybe my one complaint as far as his character. Cause I, you know, when you cast a guy like that, you should put him to use. I don't feel like they really used him enough. Um, but again, I feel like it stuck the landing better than the other two Disney plus Marvel shows. So for my final G rating, I'm going to give this an 8.5 out of 10. Definitely would recommend it. I recommend all three. Honestly, they're a great way to kind of past the time until we get our next Marvel movie because as we talked about with the last one Black Widow was good but not great um we've been on a real Marvel kick between Modoc and Black Widow and now Loki I promise there are other things that we'll talk about other than just Marvel shit but um that's going to do it for this episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast thank you all for listening please make sure to tell your friends write me a five-star review if you're enjoying the show and subscribe but until next time this is Gerald Borgay signing off